What we call the book of Galatians, of course, it's a letter written by a man named Paul, one of the early church leaders who he was not a Christian at all. And then Jesus showed up in his life and radically changed him. A lot of us have a similar kind of story, just a radical change that Jesus made in our lives. And, but Paul, what he ended up doing at that point was traveling the world to tell people about Jesus and actually founding Christian communities. We say planting churches all over the Roman Empire. It's what, it's what he did. You can read about it in the book of Acts. One of the places he went was this region called Galatia. Seems like there were a few churches there. And Paul would often write letters back to the places where he had been to help the Christians and the new churches there with different trials, issues, questions they had, issues they were facing. Galatians is one of those things. These churches had some issues. You can read about it in this letter. And at the end of the letter, he gives them what really turns out to be very generally applicable to believers everywhere. Like I said, a justly pretty famous passage. I'm sure most of us have looked at it before. I just want to zero in on one thing in it really this morning. But let's read starting in verses, uh, starting in verse 16, Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and then you get this list here, verse 19, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, it's like, whoa, (laughs) drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Revelries, probably just big crazy parties, right? Uh, We're going to come back to that list, so remember, right? Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. So, by way sort of into this, just notice in verse 22. It says the fruit of the Spirit is, and it says three things there, right? Love, joy, peace, and it goes on. I just want to focus on joy to the second one. What is joy? It could be you're hearing that, and maybe you're like, oh, it's not Christmas time. Like, why are you talking about joy or something, right? And maybe that word sounds immediately not applicable to you or like this isn't really going to be about you. But how about this as a a definition for joy? Happiness, emotional resilience, or synonyms, right? Optimism, positivity, something like that. I think a lot of people, if they hear that list, would say, okay, well, that I'm interested in, right? I'm interested in those things. And actually in the Bible, the word is even bigger than that than those things there. If you sort of bring in everything the Bible says, joy in the Bible would mean something like deep, exuberant happiness, a really deep happiness, uh, or settled emotional resilience. Not just like on Tuesdays, I'm emotionally resilient, but like that's just sort of where I'm at. That's who I am. Or 
not just optimism, but realistic, informed optimism or energetic, productive positivity. This isn't a bubbly sort of naive person who, you know, they're happy because they never look at the news and never have to do an honest day of work in their life or something like that. Uh, and if you run into this idea, you hear everything we just, I just said, and, and you think, okay, that sounds good. I like some of that. The first thing you need to do is see how this whole passage here works and how Paul actually led up to this idea of joy. How did he get there? And, and it starts in verse 16. We're going to be looking at this, just moving through these verses here. It starts in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the background of verse 16 is the reality that with the way humanity is currently operating, all of us, all of us without God, our default mode is to live lives doing what Paul calls fulfilling the lusts of the flesh there in verse 16. Your translation of the Bible might say something like gratifying the desires of the flesh. Now, when the term the flesh gets used in the New Testament, it has the basic meaning of something like this, something like, or I should say, it's used in several ways, but when it's used this way in the New Testament here, it means something like whatever humanity is without God. You could say humanity minus God. It's a way of talking about who we are that focuses on the physical. The flesh is to say something like, if you don't have friendship with God, if you don't have God's presence deep in your soul, then you'll end up being driven through life by the desires that basically come from the physical part of who you are, right? Your hormones, your brain chemicals, uh, your, your, your biology. And those things will shape the parts of your life then that aren't physical too. Without the Lord in my life, without God in my life, I get driven by things that are physical. But those things come to shape the non-physical parts of me, my inner life. Your soul then will be driven by your desires. And at that point, from this perspective, you might as well just be called flesh. Even though a human being is actually not just flesh, a human being is actually a spiritual life lived out in flesh and through flesh. That's what a human is. So for the Bible, using the word flesh is a shorthand way to answer questions like, what are men and women like when they don't have any connection to God? The Bible would say, well, that's flesh, right? What does humanity do when we don't know God, we, we can't hear God, and we don't love God? And the things in verses 19 through 21 answer that question. If you look at those verses again, this list, right? The works of the flesh are evident which are, and you have all the, I don't know how many, I didn't count, is it 13 things? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sort of moves through categories here. And one way to read those verses there from 19 to 21 is to look at them and say, does that sound like the good life? Or do verses 22 and 23 sound like the good life? If you scan your eyes down there, the, one, the, verse, the list that starts with love and joy and peace. Now, I think most people would actually read those two lists and say, well, actually, I'll have the second list, thank you. Imagine if, you know, it doesn't work this way, but those stories where, like, God takes someone before their life starts and gives them a choice of what they want their life to be. Imagine if the Lord, if he did it that way, and you know, someone was standing there, and he said, would you like this list from verses 19 through 21, or would you like the, ver the list that's called the fruit of the Spirit? I think almost everybody would say, I'll take the second one, right? I'll take the second one. And so this passage actually says... Great. 
God wants to give you the second list. That's the life he, he wants for every human being. And here's how you get there. That's what this passage says. And, and again, another sort of mental exercise, just imagine for a second that you actually knew someone. Maybe you do, but let's just imagine for a second that you know someone that verses 19 through 21 totally describe them. You look at that, you look at that list. To sum, it's, you know, if I just sum up all those words from 19 to 21, pursuing their own desires, gratifying themselves regardless of the destruction that it causes. Just doesn't matter. Just going out and getting whatever they want, regardless of what happens. Tons of conflict and drama and fighting. Jealousy, right? No regard for health or consequences. Imagine if you knew someone, maybe you do, who that list, that, that is them. And what if you had to try to figure out what was wrong with them? And when we have people in our lives like this, we do. You just like, what is going on? Uh, my guess is, I think most of us would probably say something like, I think they got someone wrong, something wrong on the inside. Or maybe they never got the love they needed. Or maybe there's pain they're dealing with. Maybe they're frustrated, right? You, you, you ever try to psychoanalyze a friend? You can't help them? You can't get them to stop, you know, destroying their own life or that sort of thing? Maybe their bad decisions are just catching up with them. But definitely, they have something gnawing at them on the inside that they can't let go and, or you know, it won't let go of them. Something like that. And I think that the language then of verses 16, if you look at that verse, and 22, fruit of the Spirit, notice Holy Spirit and all these things, 23, 25, all these verses scattered through this passage show us there's something more too. It's not just what's inside that person that's making them act this way. That's true, but there's an even bigger factor. It's what they're missing inside. What they don't have and what they need is the Holy Spirit. That's what this passage says. So who is the Holy Spirit? One way to say it would be, he's God. He's God being with us always and everywhere. The Holy Spirit is is God coming and being relationally close to us. Because Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead finally put an end to all the hostility between us and God. That's why God sends his Holy Spirit. Distance from God. This is so important. Talk about being far from God. Distance from God is never geographical distance. That's not like God lives in Tucson and I live in Taconi or something, right? And just so far away, right? It's never, that's never the issue. It's only ever relational distance. Talk about like, we were in the same room, but we were miles apart. You know that, right? Sometimes it happens in a marriage. A couple sitting on the same couch together. And I'm like, he's in Tucson and she's in Taconi. They are nowhere near each other, vice versa, whatever. I don't know, right? That's what distance from God actually is. And so when you look at those verses in Galatians 5, when it says walk in the Spirit, what walking in the Spirit means is something like keep in step with the Spirit. It's a relational thing. It means something like this, if you just expand it. Be motivated by your closeness to God, and then let your inner emotional life and your actions be shaped by that closeness to God. And do that all day, every day. And that's one way to say what it means to walk in the Spirit. You think what kind of life that would be. 
My emotional life is going to be shaped by my closeness to God. And then my actions are going to come out of that. And I'll just do that all day, every day. That would be a walk with God. That would be walking in the Spirit. Now, the question is, a good question to ask is, why would it work that way? Why would closeness to God produce the kind of emotional life that you see in verses 22 and 23? And we could just take it for granted, but it's a great question to ask. Why would, why would getting close to God have love and joy and peace just coming out of a person? The answer to that has to do with who God is and what he's like. And all you have to do to see that is to flip the question around and, and just ask it this way. If closeness to God produces, for instance, joy in someone's life, what does that tell me about God? If that's what rubs off on you when you're near God, you think about like, some of us, you know, you were never into baseball, and then you started hanging out with these guys that like baseball. Next thing you know, you're watching baseball, and you actually understand the rules of the game, and then you're a baseball. You know, if you, if you had a friend who started hanging out with another person, and all of a sudden they were into this new stuff, you would conclude that person must be into that stuff, right? It's a very mundane example, but we rub off on each other. That's what humans do. It's part of being a human. A married couple gets more and more like each other all, you know, every year that they're married. It's weird, but God actually made things that, that way. It's actually good. So, if love and joy and peace, joy specifically, is what rubs off on someone when they're close to God, then what must God be like? God must be a very happy person. Isn't that what... Right? A lot of us are like, I need more positive friends. You ever have that? And all these negative friends. It's bad if you find that they're saying the same thing about you, but that's a whole different story. These negative, I, need, I need some positive people, right? Why do we need positive people to hang out with? You hang out, you might love your friends, but if they're downers all the time, you feel yourself being drugged down, right? But God is, I mean, he's the ultimate positive friend. He is a very happy person, to say it that way. In fact, because he's God, he must be infinitely happy and joyful. Think about that. Think about infinite happiness. Even though he sees all the evil happening in the world at every moment, and even though all of it is actually directed at him, the Bible says, ultimately, he is infinitely emotionally resilient. He's not easily ruffled or offended at all. It's not, it's, again, God's happiness is an informed happiness. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's like... I watch 20 minutes of the news and I'm not happy anymore. God watches all the news everywhere all day of the whole, for the whole world. Isn't that incredible? Imagine if that got God down. Imagine he was like, oh, forget it. <laughs> what would we do? <laughs> right? You go to pray. He's like, I don't know. Don't even talk to me. <laughs> Did you watch that Tucker thing on Twitter? I can't even. I can't even. I'm like, God, you watch that? Right? Why did I say that? I don't know why I said that. But God can take it. Infinitely emotionally resilient. Again, not easily ruffled, not easily offended at all. He's never sullen. My mom used to tell me when I was a teenager, I was sullen all the time. I still don't know what it means. It didn't make any sense. But God's never sullen. He's never bored. He's never irritable. He's never detached. He's never disinterested. Again, even though he knows more about the world than anyone else, he's eternally optimistic He's excited about the future, and he's engaged in the present. Isn't that what you see when you read about Jesus? Right? That's the joy of God. And it's important to know that God's emotional life is more fundamental to the reality of the universe than any anger 
or bitterness or anxiety of any human being or, or even of all of humanity put together, God's joy is more fundamental to the reality of the universe than our struggles. The deep, peaceful happiness of God is at the center of all things, not our hang-ups or our issues. So again, the result of being close to God, the fruit of the Spirit, is joy. I want to talk to you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a question that, that I ask myself from time to time. It's an important question. Honestly, is my inner private life characterized by love and joy and peace? I mean, things can happen, right? Things can throw us off. You could be grieving here this morning. There's different things we go through in life that you know, God is with us in those things. But in general, all of the things being aside, is my inner life characterized by love and joy and peace? Because if it's not, again, sometimes what that means is that I'm allowing my old desires to dominate me at some level. It can mean that I'm not allowing the Spirit of God through God's Word, as we just read, just breaking the passage down, right? can mean that I'm not allowing the Spirit of God through God's Word to lead me through life, moment by moment, directing my thoughts and actions, walking in the Spirit. And then as a result, no matter how many good times I try to have, what will happen is that the days that we live in, with all of their evil, will squeeze out my joy and my peace. I'll find myself growing cold and anxious and calloused, right? So what can you do if you find yourself in that kind of place. We all have tendencies in us, all of us do, that when we find ourselves in not a good place, there are things each of us get tempted to turn to that are in that list in verses 19 to 21. All of us, right? It's easy to read that list and be like, oh, I don't struggle with those five things. Holy Spirit's like, yeah, but what about the other seven, right? Or what about those two? I'm like, I don't read those two, Lord, right? <laughs> we all have things in that list that we can get tempted to turn to, but the solution is to settle it once and for all that you're not going to try to gratify the old desires you have in your heart, the natural desires. But instead, you'll learn what the Spirit of God desires. And you'll learn to allow, this is the key, to allow the desires of the Spirit to direct my choices. This keeps you in close friendship with God. And when someone has that kind of closeness to God, he becomes such an influence on us that his qualities shape us. That's what we're seeing. He shares his joy, his love, his peace with us. You become a person of total freedom. Like, like the picture that we see in the Gospels of who Jesus was. Again, generous, strong, unworried, steady. Whether you're on the beach with your friends or you're sitting in the hospital waiting for news from the doctor next to a stranger watching the world news. <laughs> right? Whether you're in a boat on the lake on a clear morning, or you're at work with your angry boss, the Spirit of God will be close to you, and he'll give you what, what you need emotionally, and everything will be different. And I think we need to see one other thing from this passage here this morning, too. I've been speaking about joy as if it's primarily an individual thing, right? Something we have on the inside in our emotions. But actually, even though the life described in verses 22 and 23 starts on the inside, it's actually way bigger than that. And again, you can see that by looking at the parallel passage there, that list in verses 19 to 21. Notice all the things in that list there, adultery, fornication, all that stuff. They're not just inner emotional states people feel. You notice that? They're 
They're social issues. They're about the kinds of anger and craziness that we, we end up having going on between us and between, other, uh, between us and other people when we're not close to God. It takes multiple people to do all the things in that list. It takes friends and families and marriages and schools and businesses and neighborhoods and nations, right? Even churches. The works of the flesh are things that we do to each other, things we can't get past or get over. The things that dominate our lives because they dominate our relationships and our families and everything. So you see that and then you read about the fruit of the Spirit in the next two verses. And what the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that it's not just that he fixes us on the inside. It's that even then when we're fixed on the inside, God can fix our messed up relationships too. That's the point, right? He can fix our families and our marriages and our schools and our businesses and our neighborhoods. And definitely our churches then become models of these repaired, blessed relationships. So the fruit of the Spirit is not just love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control in our home. I'm sorry, sorry, in, in our hearts, right? In my heart, those things. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our homes and in our gatherings and in our friendships, in our churches, on our dates, saying our marriage vows, raising our children, running our businesses, taking care of our elderly, loving our neighborhoods, building our lives, and waiting for Jesus. If you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, if you're not a believer in Christ, where's your source of love and joy and peace in life? Are are we really finding it? Are you really finding it in the things that we're all told we should be chasing, right? Everyone's got an agenda for our lives. Have you noticed that? And God offers a life that transcends the things we've been calling normal here in this country for a while. You don't find God or spiritual experiences by doing things to try to get happy. That's not the recipe. You find him by realizing that first he's reaching out to you. The spirit of God is near you and he wants to introduce you to Jesus so that you can see what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross and rose again to forgive your sins. So he can bring you into a close relationship with God as your father. The the spirit is inviting you to turn away from the things that your inner desires drive you to do. This passage and to be reborn and remade in his image. And that's the way to find huge, eternal, unshakable joy and peace. And in the last few years, I think it's become more and more obvious that the world around us right now is just pushing us to everything but joy. It's pushing us into anger, into conflict, into bitterness, into like emotional zombie deadness, into cynicism, hopelessness, depression. That's our list right? That's where the real energy is in our culture. They preach love, but they feed off the energy of anger and grievance and pain. They preach life, but they actually only know how to stamp life out, if you've noticed. They know how to condemn, but who knows how to forgive and heal? They know how to tear down, but they don't know how to build. And obviously, this is true of the right and the left, right? It's not a political thing at all. Everyone is being pressured to develop minds and hearts dominated by those emotions. And in a world like that, what we need to survive is joy. 
What we need to have a fruitful life, a life that matters, is joy. We need the fruit of the Spirit. Now, even when you know this, though, you can still face things in life that rob you of your joy, obviously, and make joy difficult to have. And one of the most helpful ways I have found to, to, to battle in that area is to look at the way the Bible actually describes life to us. What does the Bible actually tell me to expect out of life? And when you see the way the Bible talks about life, you, you can think more deeply about what it's going to mean to have the fruit of joy in your life, in the real world, right? In the hard, messed up world to have joy. Anyone can have joy in a fake world. But can, can God teach me to how to have joy in the real world? And I just, by way of doing that for a minute, I want to read another passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You don't have to turn there if you'd like. You can just listen. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul gives us three examples that are super helpful for this discussion. I'm going to read from verses 3 down to verse 7. 2 Timothy 2. Paul says, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. There's your three examples here. And then Paul says, verse 7, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So again, verses 3 and 4 give us Paul's first picture here. He says life is like a battle. That's really important to know. If life was like a vacation, then we could lose our joy whenever it got hard. Vacations aren't supposed to be hard. Although in America, we, one of our great contributions to world history is the phrase, I need a vacation for my vacation. We all know that, right? Because we've all had hard vacations. Uh, but they're not supposed to be hard. But the Bible says, it doesn't say life is like a vacation, does it? I mean, you keep looking for that verse. If you find it, please text it to me. But it's just not in there. It doesn't say that. It says life is more like a battle. So if that's true, how does someone find joy in the middle of a battle? It's different than how you would find joy on a vacation, right? On vacation, joy comes from rest or maybe adventure, doing the things that you most want to be doing with the people that you most want to be with. But in a battle, joy comes from being a meaningful part of the battle and from knowing that you're winning. Really different. Christian joy is found in being a meaningful part of the battle that God is waging to save humanity and fix the world. And in knowing that no matter what it looks like, Christ is winning and he will win in the end. The second example in verse 5 there in 2 Timothy 2 says that life is like a race or a wrestling match. So where's the joy in being engaged in a real, like what does that look, what's the joy of a real strenuous athletic contest, right? Again, the joy of a vacation typically comes from getting to chill. Just need to chill, right? Just rest. But athletic joy comes from the exertion and the victory. Everyone in every Nike commercial knows that. They are loving life more than we are because they are working so hard, right? Obviously, or Gatorade commercials, whatever. In the Christian life, joy comes from knowing that Jesus is going to share his victory with me. And so then when I look back at my daily struggle, I realize that it's a meaningful part of the victory that one day I'm going to enjoy. So understanding why my life is a struggle, because I'm engaged in the battle, so it makes sense there would be a struggle, and I know there's a victory coming, right? It changes everything. You have to have the victory in view, and then you'll enjoy the sweat. Verse 6 is the third example. It says, life is like farming. 
never been a farmer, although tons of respect for them. Friends with a family around here, farmers for generations. Where's the joy in farming? Well, I imagine it comes from food, right? It comes from knowing that all your labor is going to produce fruit. It's going to be worth it. So in the Christian life, joy doesn't just come from days off. I mean, they're great. But it also comes from hard work in the Lord's field and knowing that our hard work will produce good fruit. And then it comes from enjoying the good fruit that comes from hard labor. Now, that's true in the short run. A lot of the time, God does bless us that way. And it's true eternally, according to the things that God's promised if you trust Jesus. The fact that, or I should say the fact is that, the world around us really doesn't actually know anything about these realities, do they? Like those three things we just described. The world around us who doesn't follow Jesus, those things are just not in their view of life. And they're actually dying for their lack of that knowledge. The battle just consumes them with grief. It just feels like they're losing all the time, doesn't it? The wrestling of life makes them want to give up. It's like, why is this so hard? Imagine if you were watching a wrestling match and one of the guys was like, why is this so hard? You'd be like, what are you talking about here? Wrestling. It's what you're doing. Why is this so hard? They have no word of God to explain life to them, right? The labor fills them with hopelessness. They don't have a sense of a harvest coming. It's just pain, sweat, and thorns. It's too much. And everyone around us ends up giving up and giving in to the anger and the grief or just chasing pleasure and fun because it's hard for them to see that there's ever really going to be a victory or medal or harvest. And most of all, they're dying because they're empty and their sins are dragging them down and they don't have friendship with God and they don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so they don't have joy. And if, you, that, if that's you this morning, that can all change in an instant. It was all of us at one time. And God changed it. Didn't he? And without any arrogance or pride, because we know we deserve nothing, and we've earned nothing, and we're not better than anyone, but just because God found us, and he forgave us, and we know it's real. There's hundreds of people in this room that are looking in the eye and be like, it's real. It's real. And we know that it's really good news for anyone who will listen. We have to say things like this. Christians are people who aren't going to give into the anger. We can't. It's death. We're not going to spend hours every day watching the stories of a hopeless culture preach cynicism and emptiness and death and destruction. We're not going to keep drinking the Kool-Aid of the cultural rage machine. We've got to see how essential joy is if we're going to keep going till Jesus returns. And we've got to learn to recognize all of the anti-joy energy in the world. That's one way to think about it. And we've got to disconnect from it and refuse to listen to it. And even if it's not the world, even if it's, it's our own lives, right? The grinding of daily life or, or maybe grief some of you are going through. Or again, the battles that we face to press on. We've got to hear the Spirit offering us a way past all of the things that want to fill us with the opposite of joy and let him do his work in us instead. I just want to read a passage from Psalm 89. Just listen to it. Just listen to the joy in this passage. I'm going to wrap here in a minute. Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The heavens are yours. 
The earth also is yours, the world and all its fullness. You have founded them. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. What's the most fundamental truth in the universe? You have a mighty arm. What's real? The joyful light of God's countenance. We have been rescued by life. We've discovered the greatest thing in the world. God is everywhere. He's loved us enough to become one of us. He suffered and died for us. That's real. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has erased the need for us to be alienated from God. Our sins can be washed away, no matter what. Thrown into the middle of the sea. We can escape our past and our pain. And now we have friendship with God. And when he's close to us, we can also escape the emotional energy of this lost and broken world. It doesn't rule us. Instead, the eternal joy of God rules us. And that means that right now, no matter what happens, everything is good and everything is going to be good. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray and let's sing a final song. Father, we thank you for your word coming to us, giving us life, correcting us, binding us up, strengthening us, Lord, bringing light to our eyes, bringing us into your presence. We pray that you would take your word now like seed and you would bear the fruit of joy, the kind of joy you have, the kind of joy that doesn't get conquered or thrown off. All of us want to be the kind of person that isn't thrown off by a bad day. And you know, there's probably like two of us in here who are like that, Lord, and the rest of us help us, Lord. But we thank you that this is who you are. We thank you that we can always run to someone who's not thrown off. Thank you that you weren't thrown off by us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. And we pray you bear the fruit of joy in our hearts, Lord, and in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.